Good afternoon. Thank you for uh, sticking with it here to the end. Three down, one to go. Uh, this last session is on the subject of parenting. So let me read you a, a verse, a familiar verse from Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the, the uh, enjoyable morning we have had together in your word and fellowshipping with one another. Lord, I ask blessings upon this church, uh, even now, Lord, as we have one more session and as it is um, uh, because of our physical frailty difficult to listen after lunch, uh, I pray, dear Lord, that you would enable us to uh, to concentrate. I pray, dear Lord, that you would give me the energy that I need to finish strong today. And I pray that this would be profitable uh, not only for the children that are um, in our lives now, Lord, but for generations to come. I pray that you would use this message and this hour for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark Twain said, and when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Uh, that's, a, that's a humorous quote, um, and, and in it there is a profound truth, and that is that wise parents do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature, foolish children. Let me repeat that. That is that wise parents do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature, foolish children. Uh, they do what they do because they know it to be true and right, believing that in time their children will come to the same conclusion. Solomon, as I read earlier, put it a different way. And he said, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. But what Solomon and Samuel Clemens assumed is that fathers and parents know what is good and what is wise and what is right and the way to go. I don't think we can make that assumption any longer in 21st century America. And so with that in mind, what I would like to do is I would like to give you eight actions to consider as you seek to raise your children in the way that they should go. Um, let me, before I begin these eight points, uh, throw out a few disclaimers. Here's the first one. Uh, first one is that this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, there's nothing about this list in which I will teach you uh, anything about teaching your children about money or health or sex or sports or education or household skills or people skills. Um, and, and those are all really useful lessons. Every child should learn them from their parents, uh, but that didn't make my list today. Uh, the list that I have for you today is very personal. The list that I have for you today is very subjective. I chose these eight topics by asking myself, what are some of the philosophical building blocks upon which I raised my family, and I continue to do so as I have one daughter that is 19 years old and not yet married, and we continue to, to raise her. She is away at college. Uh, that's what you're going to hear today. And again, um, not only is it not an exhaustive list and a comprehensive list, but I'm fairly confident that what I'm about to give you is not the best list. It is simply my list. Uh, that is not to say that I am preaching myself. I am not. Uh, nor is it to say that we arrive at truth through experience. We do not. We arrive at truth through the living word of God. But it is to say that as I am speaking to you today, I'm not going to be speaking based upon theory or some sort of idealistic speculation. Uh, this is not a formula that I drew up in a laboratory. Uh, but these are subjects which um, I can address with actual experience. However... I do not wish to imply that I have mastered these items or even that I do them well. Uh, in fact, I would even go so far as to say most of what I'm going to tell you today, I have learned not because I did it well, but because I didn't do it well, and I learned more from defeat than I did from success. 
Um, I have a, uh, a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. Um, furthermore, I, I, for some of you, I think some of you know uh, some of my children. My daughter was just here with us the last hour. Uh, I, I am not setting them before you as a product of what these eight points will produce. In other words, this is not a, this is not a, a recipe. Um, let me tell you something that will both humble you and encourage you. In order to humble you, I, I want you to know that I have met countless parents who were much better fathers than I am in every way. And as far as I could see, they did everything right and in line with the scriptures. And for some reason, their children turned out to be weird and ungodly and dishonest and failures. On the other hand, let me say something to encourage you. And that is that I have seen some really horrible parents who did just about everything that you could imagine wrong and doggone it, their kids turned out to be productive and polite and responsible and godly Christ-loving citizens. And, and I say that to say that at the end of the day, everything, and I do mean everything, excluding nothing, everything that I'm about to tell you is 100% dependent upon the grace of God. So please do not think that I am presenting a formula for a successful family which comes with a money-back guarantee. It really doesn't. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that you aren't responsible for your actions. You are responsible for your actions. Uh, it doesn't mean that you cannot contribute to the success of your children. You, you can, uh, you will, and you must. But what it means is that we are 100% at the mercy of a sovereign God. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, this is in God's hands. So, for those of you who are patting yourselves on the back because you raised such great kids, uh, please beware uh, that God hates that kind of an attitude and that, uh, and that pride goes before a fall. Um, uh, and please know, uh, for those of you who are so discouraged right now that you were tempted not even to sit in this session because things are going so poorly with your children and you think that you are such a failure, uh, please be encouraged because, uh, and take heart because we are at God's mercy. And even if you have done a bad job, humanly speaking, as a parent, uh, the grace of God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Uh, you see, it's ultimately, it's not up to you, but you're simply called to, to be faithful. So, once again, what I'm about to give you are personal observations uh, this is how the Moore family has operated. But I want you to understand that your family is your family. Now, now that, that is not to say that what you do is always right, but it does mean that your family is your family and that your family is unique. Um, and so please don't try to become someone else's family. Uh, you are not the Moors, you are not the Kardashians, you are not the, the Mannings, you are not the Kennedys, you are not the Manson family, uh, you, you are not the Osmonds. Um, you, you, you have to listen to these points with a very discerning ear and take what you can and by grace apply it. And if it doesn't relate, please just forget it and move on. Uh, so, as I told the men earlier, realistically, it is not my goal that you would hear these eight points and that you would remember all of them and that you would put them all into practice. It is my joy as a preacher. It, listen, just between you and me, and don't tell my church this, but it is my joy as a pastor, if from one week to, to the next, if they can just tell you what the sermon was about. So that's, that's, like a, that's like a great success for me. If you can take one of these points and make application, we have been highly successful today. Uh, and, and the other thing I want to say about the message today is that each of the eight points starts with the word you, U-S-E. And that is because James 1.22 says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So this is designed for application, not it's, it's not designed for, for, for theory. Um, you're also going to notice as I go on today that the sentences 
which I'm going to give are convoluted and probably in most cases grammatically incorrect. Uh, but they are thorough and they are descriptive enough that if you meditate on the words, even if you don't listen to the explanation of the points, just the point itself will leave you with what you are supposed to do and how you can act. Uh, they come in no logical order. There's no logical order to what I'm about to give, except for the fact that number eight is the most important point. So, here we go. Eight points on raising godly families. Point number one, use expressive words with obnoxious frequency <laughs> in order to communicate love. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. In other words, talk with your kids all the time and let them know without any doubt that you absolutely adore them. Actually, gain eye contact with them, look at them, and tell them that you love them. Uh, let's use our Heavenly Father as an example of the best parent ever. In his relationship with his only begotten son, Jesus, he verbally, publicly, unashamedly said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A and in his relationship with us as his adopted children, he communicates these words. You have a Bible. The Bible has 1,189 chapters. And in it, he leaves no doubt as to whether or not he loves us. For God so loved the world. And 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, I cannot tell you the number of people who have said something to me along the lines of, I know that my father loves me. I know that my mother loves me. And it's usually the father. I know that my dad loves me. And the way I know that he loves me is because he always went to work. And he was always faithful to my mother. But he never, ever told me that he loved me. Even the illustration that I gave in the first sermon this morning about the woman who lived and died, and her parents never told her that they loved her. And my question is, why not? The answer for some is, well, I, I, I'm old school, or that's not our culture, or I wasn't raised that way, or I'm not very expressive. To which I say, old school is wrong school. Old school is bad school. Old school is hurtful school. And I would say, old school is sinful school. Furthermore, I hear this. All my life, I tried, and I am still trying, even though he's dead, I am trying to please my father. And I feel as though I never succeeded. I never get the sense that he is satisfied with me. To which I would say, you can eliminate all doubts if you will simply look at your children and speak to them and say to them, do you understand me? I love you and I am pleased with you. Uh, with obnoxious frequency, it is not like a one-time conversation, like your parents pulled you aside at a certain age and said, okay, we're gonna tell you about sex right now and I can't wait till this is over because it's gonna be a one-time conversation and everything you're ever gonna need to know about sex, I'm just gonna tell you right now. And, and then that's the end of it and everything they told you to do already, but that's another sermon for another day. But, but with respect to love, you can't say it one time. It, it, it has to be frequent. My father died at the age of 66, and he died uh, in a massive heart attack uh, on his bed the heart attack was so quick, he didn't even ruffle the, the, the covers. I mean, he was just alive, and then he was dead, which is a glorious way to die if you know the Lord. After he died, I felt no sense of remorse in the sense of 
oh, I wish that I could talk to my dad. I wish that we could have that one conversation. I wish that we could clear things up. The reason why is because every day of his life, he told me that he loved me. Now, now here's the key. My dad did not have a dad. He was born in, 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 and raised in Dubois, Pennsylvania. He was born in 1926. When he was six months old, his father left. Back in 1926, in western Pennsylvania, people did not get divorced. So he was the only person, this is pre-World War II, he was the only person growing up that didn't have a dad. Dads stayed in western Pennsylvania, they stayed with their, stayed with their wives. So he grows up without a father. He has no idea what it's like to be a father. He doesn't have a good model in front of him. But he knows how important it is to communicate love. And so what he does for me and for my siblings with obnoxious frequency is that he tells us every day that he loves us and there was never an occasion for it. So I would be playing on the floor with my toys and my dad would say, get over here, get over here right now. You stand right here in front of me. He would stand in his chair. And he would, he would say, no, you stand still, you look at me. And he'd go, he would say, look at me. I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that I'm pleased with you. And I am very proud of you. And do you understand that? And he got that. It's like, it doesn't mean anything to you at the time. Like, it's, it's just like, if, if that's the kind of home you grow up in, that's what you expect to hear. And then you grow up and you find out, wait a minute, there are plenty of kids that aren't being told that they're loved. And then he'd say, okay, great, you, you go play. And he did that for me every day of my life. So when he died, there was no conversation that we, we, needed, to, we needed to have. It's not a one-time speak. But you need to say it to your children, whether they are five or whether they are 50. Use expressive words in order to communicate love and do it with obnoxious frequency. Um, Point number two, use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. In other words, if you, if you, if you just want to put it in a short point, have fun. Have fun. I almost om omitted this point because it doesn't seem terribly spiritual. Now, this is not a license to shirk responsibility but it is a call for delight, for joy, for laughter, for fun in the context of the family. <coughs> Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there's a time to laugh and a time to dance. And the home and the family is the place where this should be done the most. So moving from the spiritual or the eternal to the temporal, uh, if, if, if heaven is our home, right? And that is our real home. It's our eternal home. And heaven is what? It is a place of unspeakable joy. Does it not stand to reason that what we should model for our children are homes that are filled with joy? When the emphasis on raising kids to be godly is just that they need to stay away from the bad kids and, and they need to try not to get in trouble. And let me just say, it's not part of my list, but they do need to stay away from the bad kids and they do need to not get in trouble. But when that is the emphasis, it basically is not going to work. You should have prohibitions upon your children, places they cannot go, people they cannot be with. That's a given. But that is not a strategy for raising godly children. And that is not the emphasis. The strategy is, I am excited about this family, and I'm going to see that this is the place to be. And so we as a family are going to have family traditions uh, which are going to mark our lives, which are going to set us apart from other families, and we are going to have fun. So. Every year, every year, on Father's Day, my wife goes to Old Navy and she buys a stack of $5 American flag t-shirts and she buys them because on the 4th of July, every year, in really nerdy homeschool 
old fashioned, we all wear the same t-shirt and we all go to Central Park for a picnic. That is our thing. We always had family devotions and we would have Bible reading and, and, and then we would talk as a family and, and at, at the end of that talking, I would say to every person in the family, all right, what were the three best things about today? And we would go around the room and each person could talk about the three best things of that day. Uh, uh, we would sometimes jump in the car, and my wife hated this. She hated it. But I would tell the kids, I'm not going to tell you where we're going. Everybody close your eyes. <laughs> and, and keep your eyes closed until we get where we're going. Not, like, we wouldn't go to Kansas or anything, but just, just driving around somewhere in, in New York City, or, or just with no notice at all in the Christmas season, we would all jump in the car and say, we are going out Christmas caroling tonight, and we would go to the widows in our church, and we would stand on their front steps and make these four women come out and catch pneumonia in the middle of cold while we, while we sang Silent Night. Um, um, one of the greatest joys that I can ever remember is when we would have formal nights in our home. I'm sorry. Um, so I have two sons, two daughters, and the men would all wear a suit and tie, and the girls would all put on a pretty dress, and Parker would cook the meal, and Charlie would be the waiter, and Madison would set the table, and Savannah would provide the, she would make the placemats or whatever, and we would come in like we were at a restaurant, and our kids would serve us a meal. And it was just like, oh, this is glorious. It is glorious to have a, a, a simple family tradition like that that we can look back on. And the reason I'm crying now is because I would give the world and everything in it if I could go back to that day and we could do that again. Um, uh, on the night before opening day um, in baseball, and it's, it's really the only sport we really all care about, no matter where we are, no matter where we are, and we're spread out now across four different states, uh, on the night before opening day, we always watch the movie Field of Dreams. Uh, people will come, Ray, people will come, they'll come to Iowa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Every year we watch that. Uh, and um, we're just looking for adventure uh, just so that our home will be a place of fun and a place of joy. Uh, again, and, and I think this is where the father has to, the father has to be the pace setter here to say this, this family is important to me. And, and the reason I say this about memories is because the best times that you will ever have are unplanned and they are spontaneous and they are not expensive and they are simple but they are things that will create great joy over, over time. Um, about 15 years ago, the Mets were playing the Phillies. Um, and, and as always, the Mets had a, had a miserable team. And I took my sons to a game that night. And we had a backup catcher who, in the bottom of the eighth inning, I mean, this guy couldn't hit his way out of a paper bag. But... but, but on, on the bottom of the eighth inning, he hit a three-run homer. And that, for us, uh, 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 that was our World Series. That was it. Uh, it, 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 it was glorious. And so, so we went that night um, right by Shea Stadium to uh, a place called the Lemon Ice King. And I'm just standing there and thinking, okay, the weather is nice. We have won the game. My sons are with me. They are still little. And, and every once in a while, you're just sort of overcome with common sense to say, it's just not always going to be this way. It's not going to get better than this. This is the time to capture and to recognize how precious this is. And so we walk up to the counter. My sons are with me, and I did this intentionally for my sons. There was a guy there that I did not know. He was a stranger. He ordered his ice. And when he did, I turned to him and I said, not tonight, pal. No, sir. Your money's no good here. This one's on me. I'm buying around for the house. 
because tonight Castro hit a three-run home run and the Mets beat the Phillies. And huh. we're celebrating tonight, and you're not paying for yours tonight. What did it come to? Two dollars and fifty cents, or something <laughs> like that. But the point of the the point of it is that I wanted to instill in my sons this is important. We were together tonight. We enjoyed one another tonight. And, and mom and dad set the pace in your home so that your home is a place of dancing and laughter and games and tradition and controlled craziness and singing more than anything else, singing. You get more mileage out of a wrestling match on the bed than you do over a lifetime of watching television. And I think that the death sentence of the American family is the telephone where everybody is permitted to be in their own universe <laughs> and they are not required to, to come together. That's again another sermon for another day. Number three, uh, use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. Use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. It's, it's very simple. And that is that humble people pray and proud people don't. You want humble children, uh, you don't tell them to be humble, you display humility. And the way you display humility more than anything else is to pray. And so you pray with them and you pray for them. And when a crisis arises, they know to put everything down and to pray. And when it's time to eat, you know it is time to pray. And when someone is sick, you pray. And when you need wisdom, James 1, 5, if any of you is lacking wisdom, let him ask God, you pray. And when I would spank them, we would pray. When it was time to go to bed, we would pray. Uh, um, when my father, I remember him growing up being a great man of prayer. Uh, he was a radio announcer in Dubois, Pennsylvania, and he had to be on the air at 5 in the morning. And he would always wake up an hour before he had to be to work in order to pray. And I can remember every time our car left the house to drive away, I can remember my father drive, uh, saying a prayer. Whether we were just driving a mile away, my father would always pray. My father would go different places, and he would speak. Uh, he, would, he would preach. He was not a pastor, but he would go different places, and he would preach. And every time before he preached, he would go in the men's room of the place wherever he was speaking and he would get down on his knees in the bathroom and he would pray, dear God, please fill me with the Holy Spirit tonight. Please help me to minister effectively to these people. Prayer, 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 and prayer. First uh, Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. James 5.16, the effectual prayer of a prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And prayer is the means by which God has chosen to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and so some of the sweetest times that I can remember were times of grief, times of death, and times of sickness where the family would gather and the family would pray, and cry out to God. So pray in order to instill humility in your children. Point number four, use precious time. And when I say precious time, I mean there ain't much of it. It's, it's pretty rare. Use precious time with strategic urgency. Strategic urgency in order to minimize regret. Use precious time with strategic urgency in order to minimize regret. So, uh, Josh is, is he's a Gator fan. Uh, I'm a Bulldog fan. We, we, we both like to watch football games. Uh, but I don't think that we would like to watch football games together. Uh, in, fact, in fact, I am not a good person to watch any sporting event with, uh, uh, especially football, uh, because when I am watching football, it is just a constant barrage of me screaming at the television. And, and, and uh, the person that I am screaming at, I'm never screaming at the ref, I am always screaming, never screaming at the players. I am only screaming at the coach. And I don't understand, and I have never understood this to this very day, I do not understand this, is that coaches do not seem to understand that football is a timed game and that you have a limited amount of time. So, 
when you are getting ready to run a play and the clock is running down and you have a timeout in your pocket, would you not instruct your team that when the play is over, they need to jump up immediately and call timeout because every second is precious. Timeout, timeout, why isn't he calling time? Timeout, call a time, call a timeout, get over to the call a timeout, call time, call time. Stop the clock, stop the clock, why? I'm screaming at the television because I realize that every second is precious. Life is a timed game. Every day is precious. Moses writes in Psalm 92.12, So teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. Now, if you talk about the span of life, like, man, I, I just used the restroom in there and went over to wash my hands, and, like, I looked in the mirror, and, like, I'm looking at the mirror in your church and saying, who is that old man that's, like, standing <laughs> in front of me? I mean, just yesterday, I was a young man, but somehow, it's like, wow, I just got old overnight. And so, life, life, James says is what? A vapor. If life is a vapor, what is your time with your children? And if you want to shrink it even further, the amount of time that you have with your children, which is influential, in which you have an influence on them. Now, the time that you have is microscopic. Uh, it's a timed game. And so we homeschooled our children. Um, I'm not saying that you should, but we our, homeschooled our children. We did it primarily for one reason. It's not because we were afraid of the New York public city schools. It's not because we thought they would get a better education at home. In fact, I'm pretty certain that they've actually gone to school and have gotten a better education. Uh, it's not because of the influence of friends. There was one reason primarily why we homeschooled the kids, and that is because we like to spend time with them. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. So our kids, uh, they took off from home pretty early. Uh, Parker left home, as I told you in the first message, when he was 16. We got married at 21. Charlie was 17, he got married at 19. Savannah was 17, she got married at 19. And Madison, she's 19, she left home when she was 18. She's the old maid in the bunch. Uh, uh, so, so our kids, uh, I, I don't know if I ought to be giving this talk, our kids wanna leave home so fast, but, <laughs> but, but if you don't capitalize on the moment, you're going to wake up one morning like the man in Fiddler on the Roof, and you're gonna sing, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older, when did they? When did she get to be a beauty, and when did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it just yesterday they were small? Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the days. So, it's 2002, um, it's October, now homeschooling, you, can, you, you can go on vacation anytime you want when you homeschool. So I took a mini vacation, a little one and a half day vacation with my son Parker, uh, who uh, at the time um, happened to be 11 years old, 12 years old, and, um, and we went to Cooperstown, New York, to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So we drive there, and the town is empty. It's a, it's a ghost town. It's, it's glorious. The town is empty, and so we went to look for a place to stay, and we went to this, like, hotel. I guess you could call it a hotel, but, but the, the, the hotel was empty, so they gave us this facility where you walk in, and there's a bedroom, and then you walk through to another room, and there's a bedroom, and then you walk through to another room, and there's a kitchen. You walk through to another room, and there's a living room, 
and then there's a bedroom. And so this whole thing for just Parker and I, and, and he walks in and he says, hey, Dad, this is great. We can each have our own room. I said, wonderful, great. That's what you like. We'll each have our own room. So, so that night, we are uh, getting ready to go to sleep. And he says, hey, Dad, um, maybe you could sleep in the bed, like, right next to mine. I said, okay, that's, that's fine. I'd be, be happy to. So I, I get in that bed, and we watch a little television, and, uh, 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 you know, we read the Bible, and we pray, and we're, we're <laughs> turning out the lights. And he said, hey, Dad, um, maybe you and I could sleep in the same bed together. <laughs> and I said, we can definitely sleep in the same bed together. And immediately my mind went back to 1973 in St. Petersburg, Florida, when we were on a one-week vacation where we had driven our 1968 Oldsmobile down to St. Petersburg, Florida and stayed on 4th Street at the Empress Hotel. The maid's name was Beulah Snow, and my mother and my father and I for a week stayed in this motel. And when I was... 12 years old in 1973 for no reason whatsoever. No reason whatsoever. My mom and dad are in one bed, I'm in the other bed, and I simply said to my dad for no reason at all, hey dad, maybe you and I could sleep in the same bed tonight. I remember my dad saying this to me, and I don't know why he had the wisdom to say this. He said, I will certainly sleep in the same bed with you tonight, because Eddie boy, the day is fast coming when you're not going to want to sleep in the same bed with your old man. So tonight I will be happy to come crawl into bed with you. And it meant nothing to me as a 12-year-old. I didn't understand it. All I knew is that he was in that bed and he came over and got in my bed. But then when my son said to me at the same age, hey, Dad, maybe we could sleep in the same bed, I said to him, Parker, I will be happy to sleep in the bed with you tonight because life is a timed game. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. Life is a timed game, and quickly the day will come when you're not going to want to get in the bed with your dad. You don't have that much time. You have much less time than you think you have, and the time that you do have is going to fly by so quickly. The amount of time that you have to be an influence upon your children is minuscule. Regrets of wasted time and misused time are really hard to shake. And so as it says in Ephesians 5.16, make the day best use of time. Another story. So here's our bedroom, here's my son Charlie's bedroom. And Often as I would pass by his room, he'd be sitting on the floor, and he would say, hey, Dad, you want to play with G.I. Joe? <laughs> and I would say, I do. I do. Right now, i got to run to the hospital. Right now, i got a counseling session. Right now, something's, I, I, I do. I really do, and I'm going to. Hey, Dad, you want to play with G.I. Joes? Finally, one day, I went in, nothing to do. I said, hey, Charlie, do you want to play with G.I. Joe's? So I pulled the bin from under his bed. There's about an inch of dust on it. And we pulled them out, and we started to set them up. And he said to me, he said, you know, I, I don't really play with these toys anymore. And I thought to myself, I missed it. I missed it, not for bad reasons, but I missed it. As long as your kids will say to you, hey mom, do you wanna, hey dad, do you wanna, please, 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 there's nothing more important at that time than to spend that precious time with your children. Number five. Use sincere thanksgiving with peaceful contentment to keep providence. I, 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 I make this point quick, and, and that is that the most valuable tool that we own in order to maintain mental health and a proper outlook on life 
is a working knowledge of the sovereignty of God. I mean, you can have good theology, but unless you have a working knowledge of the sovereignty of God and you know how to rest in his providence, um, you're not going to be mentally healthy. Uh, so what you need to know is that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So in life, there are going to be plenty of times when things do not go your way. And it is then that you prove whether or not you actually believe in the sovereignty of God. Or as the hymn writer wrote in 1676, whate'er my God ordains is right. And without a firm, fixed, deep-seated conviction that God is in control of all things and that he has a purpose for all things, you'll lose your mind and you'll lose your temper. And so we are reasonable to uh, teach our children good theology. But we also need to teach them practical theology, and that is resting in his providence. And the way that you do that is to have a thankful heart and to be content, especially when things do not go your way. See, I think the opposite of <coughs> temper and anger and impatience and complaining and fault-finding is thankfulness. And as I said to the men earlier in the session, that a temper which is out of control could be an indicator that you really are not saved, for the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of God. So at the outset... I said that I, I learned a lot from my sin, and such is the case here. Because early on as a father, and for many years as a father, um, I was a very angry man. Uh, I was a very impatient man. Uh, I was a man that was given to outbursts of wrath. And, uh, and I am still susceptible to those sins. Uh, but about 15 years ago, God really got a hold of my heart by teaching me that the gospel is of first importance and that the gospel is for believers and that the gospel is something which can change us to become gentle. For the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. And that is trusting that what God ordains is right, especially in raising our children. Yeah, I, I believe that parents who can translate Reformed theology into their demeanor are effective leaders. We believe in the sovereignty of God, but we prove that we believe in the sovereignty of God when things do not go our way. And we let our reasonableness or our gentleness be known to all, and we prove it with thankful hearts. Number six, uh, ladies, you're going to laugh at this, at how far I fall short of this point. Uh, having just heard my <coughs> wife, but the point is, use joyful hospitality without grumbling in order to demonstrate selflessness. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality without grumbling. Um, so let me say that, and I don't know if Anna has communicated this, but we have, we have been very selfish um, in that we have allowed a lot of people to come into our home, and we have done this because we actually enjoy it. Uh, we have exposed our children to missionaries and to pastors and to Christians from all over the world, and, and it, it is a delight for us. It is not a sacrifice. It is a delight until somebody breaks something or, or until uh, it's time to go home and the people don't get the cue and you, you, you're, you're like do, you're doing a yawn and people don't leave or uh, when the meal is over nobody helps to do the dishes and, and, and at those times it is when we teach our kids selflessness uh, uh, or when people just show up to the house uninvited or, or when you get a last minute call when you really wanted time by yourself and someone will say, I'm passing through. And by the way, look, when we lived in Columbia, South Carolina, people didn't come visit us. 
we didn't have friends then. And then we moved to New York City, and all of a sudden we have all of these friends coming out of the woodwork. Hey, we were thinking about coming and seeing you. You don't want to come see me. You want a free place to stay. You want to see New York City. That, I mean, I know that, and I don't care. I do that to other people too. So that's fine. But the, but when you know that you know that you're being used, it's a way to teach your children what that this food is not ours. This stuff is not ours. If it breaks, it breaks. We are here for the purpose of extending and giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That you can preach that in theory, but you can show it, but you can show it through hospitality. Um, different families do things different ways. We happen to be people who do not believe that a beast, an animal, should be permitted into the home unless you're eating it or cooking it. Um, and uh, about a year ago, my son said, sorry. Bottom line, some people were stranded at JFK Airport. They needed to spend the night with us on their way to the Czech Republic and we agreed to let them come, and on the way to our house, my son called and said, oh, sorry, I forgot to inform you, they have a dog. Now, for those of you that are dog people, you, you're, you, that doesn't, yeah, this, this falls on deaf ears, but for those of you who do not like to have an animal in the house, um, we never allowed an animal in the house. Um, uh, uh, blind people, just come in. We'll show you around. Leave the dog outside. Uh, 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 you just sit here. You sit, sit right there. You'll be fine. Uh, uh, um, it's then that we came under great conviction uh, because we were we were showing hospitality uh, as a as it accommodated us, as it was good for us. And we had to repent, and we had to say to those who were in our house at the time, we have acted in a very ungodly way in, in wanting to ostracize these people because they have a dog. Uh, and, and we are privileged that we have a roof over our head and a place where they can come and stay. Um, hospitality will teach selflessness to your children. Number seven. Was that was that accurate, Hannah? Or did you? Yeah, you didn't tell me about the second dog. Well, you see, here's the thing: the second dog was easier than the first. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. She came, she came soft. Third. Yeah. Yeah. We just hope there's not a third. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, number seven: use the chastening rod with faithful consistency in order to eradicate foolishness. Proverbs twenty-two. Verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child, for if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol or the grave. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 29, 15. Here we go. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. It is both the talking and the thanking. Um, and, and, and really, this point deserves its own sermon. Um, so I, I won't get into all of the particulars about spanking, and, 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 and I will grant that there are abuses to this, and uh, when it is abused, uh, the authorities need to be notified and children should not be injured in, in this process. But overall, um, my heart is really grieved when I see unruly children in our society and there is no attempt to actually discipline them. Um, and, and my concern stems from the fact that foolishness translates into, into sadness. Uh, stories told of Boney Bauckham and his meeting a, a lady and her child, and, and he introduces himself to the lady, and the child is there, and he says, hello, and he extends his hand, and the child turns and 
grabs the mother's leg and the mother says, well, he's just a little shy. And Bodhi Bhakti says, yes, shy and rude. Um, um, and, and I think that this sadness goes beyond the childhood and the teen years because the child who will not obey their parents will not obey their teacher, nor will they obey the coach, nor will they obey the employer, nor will they obey the civil authorities, nor will they obey the elders of the church, and ultimately they will say to God, who is he to rule over me? Now I realize that one's eternal destiny is a matter of divine election and the blood covering of Jesus Christ, but I also realize that the same God who ordained the ends ordained the means by which the ends would be accomplished, and he tells us to deal with foolishness by means of the rod, consistent spanking. And I don't have time today to go into all of the particulars about this, except to say, my wife and I were fooling. We were fools until we got a hold of a book by Ted Tripp entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart. Uh, we would try every method in the book to get our kids to obey. Uh, don't you see that you're making mommy and daddy so sad? Or, if you do this, I will reward you with ice cream. Or, or I'm going to count one, two. Or, or, uh, or the one that really gets me the most is when I was made a fool of by myself when I said to my son, it was back when the Lion King came out, and I had spent like 7 or $8 on a little toy, and I told my son, don't do that. If you do that again, I'm going to throw away your toy. And he did it, and here I'm the fool who just spent money on the toy. And in order to keep my word, I made him throw it away, and then he went right back again to doing what it was he did before. Again, you can use all of these devices. They, 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 they do not work. Have you ever been to the beach? And, and if you go to the beach, it's a, it's a, it's a job. I mean, it's, it's tough. By the time you get there and put up your umbrella and you slept the cooler and the blankets and everything, and, the, and, and the, the mother is there and she's overly stressed, and the kid is there and the kid is acting up, and the mother turns to the kid and says, if you don't behave, we're going to go home right now. Like, this child is not stupid. They know that you're not going to pick everything up and go home. It is an empty threat. And we filled our kids with empty threats. And furthermore, what we did, which, which was even worse than that, is that we would wait until we were emotionally engaged to spank the children, and then that is not good for them, and that is not good for you. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when you say to the child, put it down, come on, put it down. Hey, listen, put it down. I've told you four times, put it down. And then you are moving in their direction to give them a spanking. You are now emotionally engaged, and that is not good. Say something once, once, in a conversational tone. If they do not obey immediately, completely, without resistance and without delay, then you spank them. You are not emotionally engaged, and they know they just have to hear it one time, and if they don't obey, then they are spanked. Started doing that, and our lives became so much easier. How would you spank them? Go to the yellow room. Have you been in the yellow room? Do you know what you did wrong? Yeah. What did I tell you? I was that. Okay. You understand now that I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to spank you. Yes. Okay. So, uh, ours was a very fair system. Every offense got the same punishment. It was ten spanks. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that. It was, it was that. And it hurt. And they cried. After they cried, pull up their pants, sit them on their lap, wipe away their tears, pray with them, Kiss them, hug them, tell them that you love them. And then I would say to them, Charlie, I will never spank you again for the rest of your life, ever, if you obey me. If you, I, I will, will never be spanked again if you obey me. Now here's the thing. Not all children are the same. I have four <laughs> children. Parker. Okay, so I have four kids. 
Parker, Charlie, Savannah, who you met today, who by the way is my favorite, and, and, and Madison. So you're supposed to tell the truth, right? So Parker, Charlie, Savannah, Madison. So you take Parker and Savannah and Madison, and you take all of the times that we spanked them, and then you double that number. <laughs> it would come to less than half of what I had to spank Charlie. The, ch the child got spanked every day. Yeah, and so everybody's got one of those. And he was, and he was ours. Uh, he happens to serve with me now as one of the, uh, as one of the pastors in, in our church. And um, he's a very godly young man. But some are harder than others. But I knew that this had uh, been a success one day when I walked outside and we share a driveway with uh, another house in New York. And my son Parker was out there shooting baskets in the driveway. And I said, Parker, let's go. We're going somewhere. And he had the ball, and he pulled it down. Now, I didn't spank him if he threw up another shot, no. But I could see what was going on in his mind. This guy's nuts. I don't know. It's, it's not worth it. He said, here's the thing. He said, let's go. That means let's go. And he pulled the ball down, and he rolled it away, and we got in the car and left. Uh, your children are smarter than you think. When you do not spank consistently, when you do not dis discipline consistently, what you're doing is you're teaching the child to play Russian roulette. And, and, and so let's just spin the chamber and pull the trigger and see what happens. Maybe dad's in a good mood. I'm not going to get it today. Whereas if you do it consistently, after one command, um, basically you create a child who becomes very secure. That is, my dad told me to stop. He meant what he said. I need to listen to his voice. And it means something. It means something when it is take out the trash. But it means something more when they are running toward a street and you say, stop. And it means something more when they are in with a bad kid at school and you say, listen to me. I don't have time to explain it right now. Stay away from that kid. Or don't get in that car. There's great value in them listening to your voice. Um, and spanking will be that which will help you to do that. Which brings us to the last point and the most important point. And that is, use the practical gospel with personal applications in order to reproduce disciples. Use the practical gospel with personal applications in order to reproduce disciples. In other words, show them how the grace of God works in your life. Because they need grace, and so do you. And, and so we show our kids how to do things. We teach our kids how to tie their shoes. We teach young men how to tie a tie. We teach them how to drive a car. We teach young, young people how to cook. We teach them a lot of different things. Why do we not teach them grace? The importance of the gospel. Now, when I say the gospel, I don't just mean that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and that you must believe in Jesus, and if you do not believe, you are condemned. I do mean that, but I mean more than that. I mean the gospel in growing as a Christian. You need to teach them what the gospel looks like in your life. Teach them your personal need for the gospel, so that when you sin, you call a family meeting. And you say this, kids, would you sit down? Mom, sit down. Um, earlier today, um, I lost my temper. And this is not pleasing to God. And so I sinned against you. And I sinned against God. And I have asked the Lord to forgive me, and I'm confident that the Lord did forgive me, for if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I also need you to forgive me.
because I sinned against you, and I'm not equivocating now. There are no excuses. It's not, it's not, I didn't do it because I'm tired. I didn't do it because I'm frustrated. I didn't do it because it's an old habit. I didn't do it because you provoked me. I did it because I'm wrong, and I'm guilty, and I'm sorry, and I'm a sinner, and, and I need to repent. The bottom line is, I need the gospel. I need Jesus. I mean, when was the last time you sinned in the presence of your children? And then when was the last time you sought their forgiveness with a broken, humble spirit and showed them your need for Christ? What makes you think that your children are going to be humble and that they are going to see the sufficiency of Christ and that they are going to know how to repent and how to walk in holiness if you're always right? And by the way, they know that you're not always right. But if you're always right, and you never need to repent, and you never need to seek their forgiveness. You need to teach them the gospel through your own life. We expect them to be honest and contrite, sorry for their offenses. Please don't be shocked if they are not honest and contrite and sorry for their offenses, if you're never sorry for your offenses. Another one of those lies I told. A few years ago, there was a Labor Day sermon that I was supposed to preach. But, but here's the thing. We had five preachers that day. Each of us were preaching five minutes. And so my sermon was only five minutes. And it was a Saturday. Georgia was playing Clemson. And my son, my adult son, Parker, said to me, uh, Dad, uh, are you you finished with your sermon for tomorrow? I said, sure, I'm finished. I'm just what kind of a pastor would just finish with his sermon on Saturday? Um, and and uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's crazy. I've never, never heard of anything like that. But uh, and I said, sure, I'm I'm done. Well, how did I justify that in my mind? I mean. I've been preaching for over 30 years. I can put together a five-minute sermon fairly quickly. I mean, I'm, I know what I'm supposed to preach on. I mean, I'm, I'm not really done-done, but I'm kind of done in that I kind of know what I'm going to say. It was a lie. It was just a lie. He asked me if I was done. I was embarrassed that I hadn't done the work yet, and so what came out of my mouth quickly was a lie. Yeah, I'm done. I had to call him up. Sunday morning before church and said, Parker, I told you I was done with the sermon yesterday, but, but I really wasn't. I lied to you. Now, let me say this. Sins which are committed privately, um, I, I don't believe that you need to, like every time you, you sin privately, you need to call a family meeting. Uh, but also another practical way to use the gospel in order to reproduce disciples is to extend mercy. You just think you're going to do some really boneheaded things. How bad is your memory? I mean, do you remember some of the knucklehead things that you yourself did? Why would they, why did you, okay? Why did you, whatever it was that you did? Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be disciplined, but I am saying we should be merciful. For judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. And to be merciful is to be godly because God is merciful. When he disciplines us, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11. He's not harsh. He's not demeaning. So spank your kids to the glory of God and let them feel the sting of that spanking, but make sure that at the end of the day they know that it's done with a heart of mercy. Again, as one who constantly needs grace, don't you think you need to be showing grace? And if you show it, explain the gospel. God has been merciful to you in Christ at the cross, and therefore the response is that we must be merciful to others. So let me close by saying this. Your children are either going to grow up in a performance-driven house or a grace-driven house. 
if they grow up in a performance-driven house, they're either going to be hypocrites who they learn, they learn how to play the game, they pretend to be something they are not, or they are going to be rebels who can say, I can't meet mom and dad's standards, so I'm not even going to try. Or they're going to be Pharisees who outwardly conform, but inside they are full of pride and dead men's bones. Or maybe your kids are going to grow up in a grace-driven house, and if it's a grace-driven house, then they will be disciples. They will understand grace. They will seek for grace. And then when they get to be parents, they will extend grace. And so use the practical gospel with personal application in order to reproduce disciples. So 50 years from now, when you're dead or near dead, and someone asks your children, what was your mom like? What was your dad like? Well, there's a lot of things that they can say about you then which are going to be embarrassing. But wouldn't it be wonderful if they would say, you know what? My mom was a Christian. She loved Jesus. And, and, and my dad was a Christian. He loved me and he loved the Lord. And they prioritized the kingdom and they understood the gospel, how it worked practically speaking. And they showed me mercy and, and they sought mercy and they lived out the gospel. But more than what they say about us half a century from now, it's how they actually turn out. And so the most powerful tool, most effective tool to influence their character is the gospel. Spoken, taught, learned, applied, emphasized, lived out. The gospel is of first importance.